You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And I'm Brian Sullivan in for Kelly once again. And here's what's ahead. The consumer is not cracking yet. But one of our analysts says a setup for retail earnings may be tougher nonetheless. She'll tell you why. And one group, she says, can keep the retail party going at least for now. Plus, a lot of big brands spent big money on big ads during last night's big game. But the big winner may have been a different group. We'll explain. And we've got the story, the action, and the trade on three more names. Two our trader likes. One... They say avoid because of too much angst around the name. All that is ahead across the hour. We begin with your money, and it just keeps going up, up, up. We got more records across the board. Again, at a record high, you go up, it's, it's a new record because math. All the major averages are higher, led, of course, by what else? Semiconductors. And it's not just NVIDIA. Look at this. The monster run for ARM Holdings continues. ARM Holdings is up just over 20%. It was a little bit higher earlier. Okay, Arm Holdings, Semiconductors, it's based in the UK. It is now doubled in value in less than a week. It's added $80 billion in market cap in three or four trading days. Arm's market cap now bigger than Applied Materials, Texas Instruments, Lamb Research, and even Micron. Also going to check out the regional banks after last week's volatility, that KRE Regional Bank Index, steady and even up a little bit, up about 2% today. New York Community Bank, which is really the source of much of that volatility, up more than 1% in today's session. So regional banks, a little calm with the rest of the markets. All right, here's a sully side up. American consumers are feeling more optimistic about inflation and their overall financial outlooks. But they also spent a little bit less in January, probably just a holiday hangover, let's be honest. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joining us now with more on the consumer and how we're doing. Steve. What do you know about hangovers, Sully? You don't know much about that, right? Not, not, not today because the whole family got sick yesterday for the Super Bowl, so it was the most mellow Super Bowl ever. Oh, sorry about that. Well, here's the deal, Sully. After a strong holiday shopping season, consumers took... And they took a little break in January with the CNBC NRF retail monitor. We use credit card data from Affinity Solutions. It registered a modest decline. Here are the numbers. Retail sales, ex-auto and gas. That's our top line number for this survey. Down two-tenths of a percent versus 0.4 in December and a strong 0.7 in November. Year-over-year declines to 2.3 from 3.1 in December. Core retail, that takes out restaurants a little bit better. Pretty much flat versus 0.2 in December. The year-over-year, though, is up a little bit. 3.2 versus 2.4. The January decline follows two strong months right in the heart of the holiday season. It could challenge some of the growth forecast out there of around 3% for the quarter, especially if the weakness is repeated in February. Here's the sectors. Uh, gas stations down 1.3. Furniture and home furnishings can't find its legs with what's going on in the real estate market down 1%. Food service and drinking down 0.7. Could have been hurt by weather. Clothing accessories came back, was pretty good. Non-store retailers, that's your internet up 0.7. And electronic and appliances having a good month of January, 1.3%. Meanwhile, the New York Fed survey of consumer expectations finding that year-ahead inflation expectations fell for all goods tracked in the survey the second time in three months that's happened. That suggests consumers still see goods inflation, goods deflation, sorry, 
Continuing, the year-over-year was unchanged at 3%, held up perhaps by services. But the three-year, down two-tenths to two-four, that's the lowest three-year inflation expectations since March of 2020. Five-year unchanged at 2.5%, a pretty good number for the Fed there. The outlook for food and rent hit the lowest level since 2020. Unemployment expectations remain low. So is the concern about losing one's job. Consumers were more confident in their abilities to pay their debts and 77, sorry, 76.5% to be precise, of the respondents expect to be better off financially a year from now. And that's the highest in September 2021. So pretty good numbers there, Brian. You work for a channel called CNBC, and I'm told on this network we occasionally talk about stocks. And I would imagine that you kind of alluded to it, Steve, but this wealth effect going back in history, how much does a stock market that's up, even if it's money you can't pull out, it's your 401k, college savings, it's not money you're going to sell because the tax hit, whatever, but even knowing it's there and going up, I've got to imagine sort of inflates people's mood. You know, I've read a lot of studies on this, Brian. I've heard numbers like five cents on the dollar and two cents is like uh, psychological and three cents is real. In other words, you might actually take some of those stocks and spend two or three cents of it, and then you might spend a little bit more because psychologically you feel wealthier. It's not huge, Brian. I I don't suspect people are stupid in the sense that they see what's happening in their portfolio and say, oh, let's go out and spend. They're probably more risk-averse. Ultimately, that's what behavioral economics shows. So it's a modest number, uh, but it is there. And when these, uh, these gains accumulate like this, you can expect there to be some impact on the retail side. Yeah, five cents. I like the three cents. That's the real money. But either way, it's uh, it's got to be good and some good consumer numbers. Steve, thank you very much. All right. So what sure. Steve just said should be good news for retailers. But your next guest says it may still be a rough road ahead, at least for some. Here to tell you why and what group may be holding up better in the short term is Alex Strayton, Equity Research Executive Director at Morgan Stanley. Alex, you just heard Steve's report. Welcome, by the way. You have a similar take on the consumer? Look, I think his view on the consumer is correct in terms of a, a stronger holiday season. We certainly observed that on my end in Softline's retail. Holiday came in better than feared. Even the third quarter came in better than feared. And you see that in the stocks. They've rallied, you know, 20% into year end. They've given up a little bit of that. I will say we did see some weakening here in January, though, in the traffic data that we monitor though that appears to be mostly weather-driven, and we've seen an uptick here in February. Um, the tough thing, though, I will say, is that we are facing some of our hardest traffic and thus sales compares of the year here in February. So it may mean we're, we're having retailers facing a, a weaker fourth-quarter exit rate as well as a first-quarter entry rate, which is part of why we're a little bit more cautious here. Yeah, and cautious on some, less cautious on the other. And I'm, without even, I'm just going to flip the notes over. Because just going back in my history of doing this a long time, Alex, I would say something like luxury tends to hold up better because rich people. Sure. So the way we think about who can hold in better this earnings season, I mean, for me, there, there's really two things we're focused on. It's, it's positioning, where do these stocks sit? And it's also, where can they guide the year? Right now, as I mentioned, our stocks are sitting at valuation highs, which is really tough, limited short interest, very bullish. Um, and then on the other end, we're a little bit worried about the guidance in terms of this weaker demand trend I mentioned, as well as recent precedent. 
I think for us, one of the ones that fits the narrative you mentioned is, is Lululemon. We're pretty positive there. I think that recent high-frequency data for that consumer, the pressure that we've seen looks a little bit overblown, and they can actually guide the year a little bit better than expected. Um, we have seen that, though, resilience in the higher end. I don't cover luxury per se, but I do cover higher-end businesses, and that has been a theme and appears to have remained the case through holiday. Yeah, we're looking here. Also, on the other end of that as well, you know, you hear so much about these, these I don't know what, you, the discounters, I guess what we call them, the Ross stores, the TJ Maxx's of the world, that sort of treasure hunt mentality is what they call it. People love going in. You're nodding your head. I hope I'm getting this right. You go in because you don't know what they're going to have, and you're always kind of hoping to find that gem. Is this a counter-cyclical play, or would a Ross do well even in a good economy like we have because people just have more money to spend? Yeah, so you bring up an interesting point. What we've seen in the off-pricers in the last couple of years is actually more so underperformance versus history and their typical historical algorithm, while the low-income consumer has been under more pressure. TJ is the one exception to that. Now, as a result, we have TJ Maxx sitting at margin levels that are in line to above pre-COVID. That is incredibly unique in my space. And so while that's the case, the thing trades at really great levels, rich valuation, it's very appreciated. It's been awarded and rewarded in the right way. But it's also part of why we actually like Ross a lot in the group. Um, it's our preferred, given its, its historical track record, very consistent. It has an ongoing margin recapture opportunity, similar to what I spoke to on TJ, but TJ's already there. Ross still has more to go to its pre-COVID level. It's also at the lowest premium to historical valuation in that off-price group. And as the low-income consumer isn't worsening, I think that's a great tailwind. But I do think you're, you're hitting on something, which is as we're approaching this quarter where we're a little bit fearful, the risk-reward skews to the downside, I do think off-price can be a safe haven um, mm-hmm. as they typically give you know, conservative guidance and as they get this low-income consumer potential tailwind, maybe trade down too. We'll as, as opposed to, I guess, a gap and a Macy's, which you say proceed very cautiously on. Yeah, look, names like a, a Gap, a Macy's, a, a Victoria's, as you mentioned, a couple of them, they've enjoyed massive rallies, and I would call it a disproportionate relative to the rest of our group. All of the lower quality names have had outsized gains in the last three months. And with these three in particular, and maybe I'll just start with Gap and Victoria's, I think investor sentiment has somewhat gotten ahead of themselves because we haven't had full evidence of turnaround success or inflection duration. So what I I fear is that they could be punished on guide that maybe is in line, but against relatively bullish or more optimistic sentiment is perhaps a little bit overblown. Um, And then Macy's, of course, is a little bit different in that though there is really compelling cheap valuation there, this real estate bid that's been out there in the market has certainly supported that name. And while they have refuted it via press release, I think they might more fulsomely do that on the call. Um, and, and while that's the case, I think maybe it it, it, it hurts them a little bit. And, and I will say, I mean, we were more uh, – it was, it was tough to find a lot of great opportunities to be, I guess, more negative this earnings season because we do have a, a favorable front half for many of these names. Alex Strait and Morgan Stanley, equity analyst on the retailers. Lululemon, you got Ross stores, and be careful about Gap, Victoria's Secret, and Macy's. Alex, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up. So, the Kansas City Chiefs won another Super Bowl. But whose commercial won the hearts and minds of you, the audience? We're going to run through the numbers and talk to one ad exec about the buzziest spot. Plus, we're firmly above 5,000 on the S&P 500, but your next guest sees... 
a leadership change looming. The names he expects to outperform in the days and weeks and months ahead. The exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Advertisers scoring big yesterday as last night's Super Bowl went into overtime and could go down as the most watched ever. Brands leaned heavily on celebrity endorsements. Dunkin' Donuts had Ben Affleck, J-Lo, Tom Brady, Matt Damon. Verizon tried to break the internet with Beyonce and for a second year in a row, the average cost of a 30-second spot was roughly $7 million. But it may have been the brands that spent less that won big. Julia Borston and Mountain CEO Mark Douglas joining us now. What does that mean, Julia? The brands that spent less might have won more. I'm not sure exactly what that's referring to, but I would say that there were a number of advertisers who bought ads that they thought were going to be for the post game. You know, they were going to be after the game was already over. And because the game went to overtime, they ended up winning out there. But I think it's also interesting to look at how some of these brands that spent a fortune um, on celebrities are seeing that payoff and that we're talking about it now. Celebrities were really a key theme in this year's game. And then uh, and then you have a brand like Timu, uh, which is the Chinese e-tailer. They had three in-game ads. We're talking about so much money spent on ad time here. Their ad itself was was memorable in that the jingle was a little sticky um, and my, my kids were humming it afterwards. But the ad itself was not that exciting compared to some of the other ones, at least I thought. But people really found it um, engaging. And there were some stats from EDO finding that people went online and looked at what Timu was to try to learn more. Yeah, I, th- I think that was the idea. What, what Julia got got it basically, Mark, which is that if you bought an ad on the cheap, expecting you were getting an ad for whatever show was on CBS after the game, but it went into overtime. You you paid for. I think the show is called Tracker. You paid for Tracker. You got Mahomes. That's a win. Yeah, l- l- <laughs> lucky day. <laughs> For those brands. So, but, you know, I thought the game, um, obviously the game was great. I thought the ads that did the best were the ones where less was more. In other words, people really don't want an ad that's trying to compete with the halftime show. So that's like a big Beyonce ad. I think they like the ones that are just pure funny. And for me, that was the Duncan ad with Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez, the Tom Brady. I, I, I got to Mark. I got cor- to correct you. It was the Dunk Kings. See, even no, it, right. The Dunk see, Kings. So if, even I, if I know that, it worked. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and Tom Brady scored twice because then he was in another ad for Bet MGM. I call, I think of that as the best performance TV ad because I mean it was just funny that Tom Brady couldn't get was not allowed access to it. And that was the entire ad was structured around that. And I bet you a lot of people downloaded that app but after seeing that ad. And we got and my we got a Vince Vaughn. My wife was very happy. She's like, oh, Vince Vaughn, you know, got a Vince Vaughn sighting in that bet MGM ad kind of in a weird way, sort of, you know, he's famous for his first movie, Swingers, which took place largely about halfway in Las Vegas. I thought that was a good one. Julie, just as a fan, just as a viewer, any that stuck out to you? My personal favorite was the one for Hellman's Mayonnaise starring Kate McKinnon and also a cat. I thought it was funny. I I thought it had just enough celebrity but hit all the notes, made a lot of jokes. Um, That was my personal favorite. But I have to say, I also like the Beyonce Verizon ad. 
Yeah, the talking cat. I, lo I love a talking cat. You can't get better than a talking cat. I also thought the baby, the pickleball playing babies uh, were pretty fun too. But um, I, I actually think that the, the Verizon ad for Beyonce was, was great. It was a lot. Um, you're right, Mark. It was a lot. Um, but everyone in the room stopped and paid attention. Um, and and I, thought, I thought that one worked as well. So, um, so a, a lot of fun stuff. And I think that when it came to celebrities, more was more. Not just one celebrity, was but so many of these ads had three or four or six celebrities. Well, the same celebrities popped up a yeah. bunch. Dan Marino was in two different ads. Tom Brady was in, or excuse me, Tim Birdie, as they called him in one, was it was in was in two different ads. You had the Walken ad, which I thought was great. The, you know, it was kind of weird with the car, but I, just Christopher Walken, anytime he's on, you want to watch. I thought overall, Mark, and tell me what your my, my take was the ads were pretty safe. Sometimes you get some pretty edgy ads. They were all very, I thought, very safe for the most part. And a lot of movie ads. Maybe we got to sell a COVID backlog of movies. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were safe, but they, I think generally they traded heavily on humor. There were a ton of movie ads. And I think those work when either the audience is really anticipating the movie. So that's like Deadpool 3, and which was a very- That's like, your buddy, that's a plug for your buddy, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. You just gave a cheap plug for your friend. <laughs> it's not a plug. It was a funny ad. And then the, there was another one, I'm forgetting the name right now, but where, you know, the movie really has to hit hard if you're going to premiere a movie at the Super Bowl. Like, you got to get my attention or else that's a ton of money for that ad. My guess was that was Quiet Place 3 because I didn't know where they were going with that one. Then I was like, oh, the one with the, the aliens that eat people if they make any noise at all. Yeah. And yeah, I thought I thought that was that was interesting. And now my son wants to watch me. I'm like, no way. It's too scary for all of us here. Uh, no, it is. It is interesting that the number of celebrities that were out there. And there was one that was missed, Julia. And, and this is all the tech bros, I guess, I, of which I sort of am one. When they cut to Beyonce and Jay-Z in their box and CBS said Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? Because the whole world knows who they are. Did you see who was sitting next to them? Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter. And he was, I, I did he was wearing a Satoshi yeah. Nakatomo, the founder of Bitcoin sweatshirt. CBS had no idea who he was. No, by the way, why would they? We're, we're the business nerds. But that, that image, I tweeted it out, probably got more attention than the Super Bowl ads themselves. I guess that's a win for Beyonce, Jay-Z, and Jack Dorsey uh, and Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, but remember, Jack Dorsey is no longer running the company formerly known as Twitter. That's Elon Musk now. Um, but I also have to say, speaking of, of the, the tech world, there was so much AI, reference to AI in these ads. We saw it front and center in a Google ad. I thought that Google ad was great. We heard about AI from Mark, Microsoft um, and then even some ads poking fun at AI. So I think this is the year where we really, where we really saw AI front and center. Yeah. Final takeaways. Yeah. And the mic. Yeah, well, I thought the Microsoft AI, AI ad actually worked because it was real specific. It, it basically was a product demo for the co-pilot project. So I thought that really worked. And the takeaway, I would say, I mean, my takeaway is that, like, focus on making people laugh. You don't need the huge production to accomplish that goal. That's true. Just some big name talent, which we saw a lot of last night. Mark Douglas and Julia Borston, and a great game, by the way. Thank you both very much. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, closing the gap on venture capital. Why black startup founders are starting getting less than half a percent of all the VC money out there. 
what investors and entrepreneurs can do to increase that percentage of funding ahead. But first, Diamondback Energy, the original FANG, that's its ticker spiking 10% as it makes a big deal in the Permian Basin. We'll get more on that and much more on these record markets coming up. And by the way, speaking of Jack Dorsey and his Bitcoin sweatshirt, check out Bitcoin. It is just below 50. It was over 50K earlier. It's just below, hey, maybe that Satoshi Nakatomo sweatshirt powered Bitcoin higher. We're back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Got to tell you about today's mega energy deal. Diamondback Energy buying the largest privately held oil and gas producer in the Permian Basin. It is called Endeavor Energy Partners. It's a deal worth $26 billion. And it makes FANG, Diamondback's ticker, the third largest oil and gas producer in the region behind Exxon and Chevron. We have been on a record rush for black gold deals lately. Look at this lineup. Exxon buying Pioneer for $60 billion. Chevron, Hess, $53 billion. Oxy buying Crown Rock for $12 billion. Chevron also bought PDC Energy for about $8 billion, and mid-sized player APA, formerly known as Apache, announced it's buying Callan Petroleum in a $4.5 billion deal lately. The bottom line is this. There is a big push to boost production in the Permian Basin, and with these deals, it is now basically just three companies, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Diamondback, that rule and run Texas's most valuable oil-producing region, all, by the way, in a matter of just a couple of months. All right, now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News Update. Thank you very much, uh, Brian. Police say the shooter who was shot and killed at Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church yesterday carried an assault-style rifle with Palestine written on it. That's according to two law enforcement officials familiar with the investigation. The shooter also threatened having a bomb, which turned out to be unfounded. Two off-duty police officers at the church struck and killed the shooter, whose five-year-old son was also critically injured in the chaos. White House National Security spokesman John Kirby will now have a bigger role. Reuters reports that Kirby will have a new title as an assistant to the president and be in charge of coordinating communications for national security across multiple agencies. He'll also head a separate team from the National Security Council's press office. And a nor'easter is expected to hit early tomorrow, dumping more than six inches of snow in New York City and over a foot in Boston, perhaps. Uh, the storm has prompted both cities to close schools and is set to potentially down power lines and trees, causing power outages. Brian, I want you to drive carefully tonight and tomorrow. Thank you. I will. And uh, looks like uh, there will be some snow days in the Sullivan household tomorrow. Looks uh, like it in the Matheson household as well. There you go. We'll just do it from home. Tyler yeah, Matheson, sure. thank you very much. All right, coming up, stocks hitting new highs to start the week. And your next guest sees a turning point coming in the market. The four horsemen he is betting on for the next leg of this rally. You're going to find out, but only if you stick around. 57% of black business owners were denied bank loans at least once when starting their business. That's compared to 37% of non-black owners. Despite this, many African-American entrepreneurs report feeling optimistic about their futures. Celebrating black heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Happy Monday, everybody. The Dow and the S&P 500 are having a happy Monday. They are hitting new highs. The Nasdaq 
closing in on a record. And while your next guest sees more room to run for the overall market, he thinks the next leg of the rally is going to look a little bit different than it has. Joining us now is David Katz, Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, great to see you in the daylight. Thank you very much for joining us. What does that mean? How, how is the market move and market makeup going to change over the next number of months and quarters? So we're still upbeat about the market, but we think that things that have done phenomenally well over the last 13 months are going to slow down. Technology, the Magnificent 7 or 5, started this year on a roll. We think that's going to slow down. And then areas that have not done nearly as well, we think are selling at much more reasonable valuations are going to be the next leg. That would include things like healthcare, the utilities, um, uh, drug companies, financials, industrials, all really have not done a lot. Stocks sell at about 14 to 15 times earnings. We think that's the place to make money. Yeah, I saw, I saw a chart on, uh, on X, formerly known as Twitter, over the weekend with Charlie Bellello of uh, Creative Planning. And it said that the 10 top holdings in the S&P 500 are now over 32% of the entire index, which is the highest concentration going all the way back and maybe ever to 1980. 10 stocks, 32% of a 500 stock index, taking nothing away from the NVIDIAs of the world, David. That does not seem super healthy to me. Well, we think it's healthy that these businesses have been doing phenomenally well and really have grown significantly. Historically, however, you're exactly right. When companies get that big as a part of the index, they generally will start to slow down their changes in leadership. If you look at things on a valuation basis, those largest 10 stocks are probably selling north of 30 to 35 times earnings, where a lot of the market is selling at 15 to 17 times earnings. We think the answer is somewhere in between. Clearly, uh, the mega cap growth stocks have great growth prospects. But we think they're a little bit fully priced for that. And we think some of the companies that are having flat to modestly higher earnings this year uh, don't have great near-term prospects, but they have good intermediate-term prospects, and you're getting them at really good prices. So that's where we'd be putting the money. Why do you like an American Electric Power? Just a big old kind of boring utility. It's a boring utility that grows at 5 to 7% per year. The dividend grows nicely over time. You're getting it at about 14 and a half times earnings, a 4.6% yield. Utilities have been one of the worst performing groups over the last 12 months. We think the Fed is going to be lowering rates as the year progresses. We don't know whether it's going to be May, June, or July, but it's going to happen. And we think when that happens, when rates start to go down, when uh, money market rates start to go down, people are going to start to move back to utilities. You want to buy them early. You're getting them at a great price. Yeah, also a PNC Financial. And again, I'll use the term boring. It's a bank. It's a financial advisory firm. It's got a lot. It's very big, by the way, but it's not J.P. Morgan. Doesn't get a lot of attention. One of the great things that you want to focus on in banks is boring. You want a bank that's sort of under the radar, makes a lot of money, good balance sheet, good credit, and that's exactly PNC. Uh, they pay a very healthy yield, low P.E., uh, we think the banks are going to do better this year as it progresses. We don't think the New York Community Bank is going to really spread out to the other banks in the group, especially the biggest banks. And we want, we'd be buying into this recent dip. OK, finally, an Amgen. Again, one of the biggest biotechs in the world. Biotechs as a whole, David, are pretty interesting because they used to be the, the NVIDIAs of the market in a certain way, right? They would just they would move up higher. They had a run. Nobody seems to care about biotechs lately. And maybe that's the point. Definitely not the big biotechs. They sell as if they were drug companies. In terms of Amgen, they've done very well as a business. The stock sells at about 14 times earnings. The stock's down after a good earnings report about two weeks ago significantly. 
Uh, we think the catalyst to make the stock go higher is they have a number of shots on goal on these weight loss drugs. So they're clearly not a Lilly or a Novo Nordis, but we think they have the next generation of possible products. And instead of paying 50 times earnings for a Lilly, you're paying 14 and a half times for Amgen, which might have a product out there. And also you're getting a very good yield while you're waiting. And as you said, very dull and boring, but it makes money and it grows earnings over time. I think you paid to wait on all three, AEP, PNC, and uh, AMGN. David Katz, Matrix Asset Advisors. David, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. All right, you too. All right, so if you're an investor, when stocks go up, it's likely your wealth goes up too. But one group has seen the value of their assets grow by 50%, 50% in less than five years. And no, it's not just old rich people buying NVIDIA. Robert Frank joining us now with more on a rather surprising study. Brian, good to see. Well, real wealth has increased for all age groups since 2019, but new research from the Fed shows that millennials and Gen Z have seen by far the fastest growth. Americans under 40 saw their wealth increase by 80 percent since 2019. That compares with a growth rate of just 10 percent for those aged 40 to 54 and 30 percent for those over 55. Now, the main reason for this young money boom is stocks. Those under 40 saw the value of their financial assets increase by 50% since 2019. Those over 55 saw only a 20% increase. And it wasn't just that their existing stocks went up in value, they also bought more of them. The share of their financial assets held in stocks went from 18 to 25%. That was the biggest increase of any generation. Finally, they're starting to close the wealth gap with older investors. Their share of assets held in stock now equal to those aged 40 to 55. Now, the research paper from the New York Fed saying millennials and Gen Z received large stimulus checks during COVID, and they used that money to buy stocks. Quote, this increased exposure to equities, the fastest growing financial asset class during this period, enabled younger adults to record higher growth in both financial assets and overall wealth. Now, since they tend to favor tech, they likely had a pretty good start to 2024, Brian. So diamond hands seem to have paid off for those younger investors. Yeah, the diamond hands and, uh, you know, getting maybe <laughs> stimulus and like living with mom and dad and being able to reinvest some of that money. All right. So what about the total wealth in each sort of age strata? Yeah, and that's that's where it gets tougher for millennials and Gen Z. They still have about one tenth the wealth of baby boomers and about a third of the wealth of those sort of Gen X 40 to 54. Now, some of that's expected because that's the maturity, that's the life cycle of wealth. You don't have much wealth when you start out, you build it over your lifetime. But even at the age of 35, you compare today's folks with the baby boomers, they're about 30% less than baby boomers were when they were 35. So it's been a tougher climb up so far for this group. But the one thing that is really helping them now, especially given that the housing mm -hmm. market is so overpriced for a lot of younger buyers, is the stock market. Those who got in have done very well. Diamond hands, to your point, Robert Frank. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Fascinating. <laughs> Maybe you. some good news there. All right, good news everywhere today. Coming up, matchmaking and money. But no, this is not a Valentine's Day story. We're going to tell you how black tech founders are finding new ways to increase their funding. That's Sharon Epperson, and it's next.
Spotify. Welcome back. While higher interest rates have kept most venture capital funds on the sidelines lately, it has been particularly difficult for black tech founders to raise money. Sharon Epperson joining us now with a look at how some entrepreneurs, though, are trying to work to change that. Sharon. Some of them are doing exactly that. For many black entrepreneurs, reaching out to individual investors for money and advice is increasingly important to help ensure their companies not only survive, but grow and thrive. We talked to two startup founders about funding for early stage companies and how to find the right match. Disappointed with the local dating scene in Washington, Nasa Shelley, an attorney, saw an opportunity. When I looked for a matchmaking service, I looked for a dating app. I couldn't find anything that catered to professional black women. In 2018, she founded Carpe Diem, a dating app and matchmaking service. To fund the business, she sold her condo, drained her savings, and raised money from friends and family. The growth and revenue potential is massive. As the business has grown, Shelley has raised nearly $2 million and continues to make her case to investors for funding to enhance marketing, hire more matchmakers, and expand into other cities. I can't understate the value of getting capital into the hands of minorities and especially women of color to help them fuel their businesses. I think there's a unique drive for success because of a lack of resources and the necessity to drive optimal outcomes with less support and less capital. Matching investors with opportunity prompted Jason Ray to start his own wealth management firm based in Philadelphia in 2019. Many of his clients invest in early stage businesses. The first thing people should think about is how it frames into their investment policy or financial plan and why they're investing in startups. If clients want to invest, he advises they know how the company operates and its competitive advantage, evaluate the management team and its track record, and most importantly, understand the terms of the investment. If the valuation on the company is too high and you as an investor are not getting enough rights or ownership or control or whatever it may be, that may not be the right deal for you, even if the management team and the company has great competitive um, advantages. Carpe Diem seized the moment and now has a revenue generating business. We have customers, we have members. It makes it a little bit easier coming to the table and advocating for additional funding from investors. Now, many startup founders say finding the right match starts with finding people who want to invest early and who can offer advice and mentorship to help grow the company into a thriving business, Brian. But that is risky, and it takes money. So how much money does it take, and how risky could it be? Well, it can be very risky, and there's no guarantee that you're going to even get your money back. A lot of startups do not are not successful and do not have positive returns. But what you want to think about is, if you want to be an accredited investor and perhaps an angel investor and getting to an angel fund, it's important to have at least $200,000 of income if you're single, $300,000 for married couples, or a net investable assets of a million dollars or more, not including your private And I, I got to imagine, because listen, a lot of companies, most companies ultimately fail. So given that, for goodness sakes, don't put all your money into one company, right? I mean, unless you're really a gambler. Absolutely. You want to make sure you can spread it out and don't have more than maybe 10, 20 percent of your portfolio in any, any startup ventures, because you want, again, this is not money you can have access to. This is money that you're going to um, perhaps lose. We want to make sure that you get more advice and join us for a free virtual CNBC Women and Wealth event on March 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We're going to bring together top financial experts to help you build a better playbook, offer practical strategies to increase income and identify 
identify profitable investment opportunities. You can scan the QR code right there to register or visit CNBCEvents.com slash women and wealth. Good stuff. And it's free. And it's free. That's so that, the best part. So that's 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 zero percent of your portfolio. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It works out. Sharon, exactly. thank you very much. Sure. All right. Coming up, forget offices and apartments. Despite strong travel demand, the next pain in commercial real estate could actually be hospitality. I'll tell you why. Coming up. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Marriott and Hilton both hit record highs last week. But some say there are real estate risks lurking around the corners in the hospitality sector. Diana Olick joining us now with more on that story. Diana. Well, Brian, all commercial real estate is being hit by higher interest rates. Even if a sector is doing well, commercial loans are much shorter term than most residential mortgages and need to be refinanced more often. And that hurts in today's much higher interest rate environment. So in the past, after the great financial crisis, lenders used a strategy of extend and pretend. They'd extend the loans at the previous rates until borrowers could get current again. That doesn't work so much now because rates are so much higher and because lenders can sell the properties to eager investors. So besides office, we want to look at which sectors we should be paying attention to, right? Believe it or not, lodging. Yes, it had a banner year in 2023, and Expedia just reported strong earnings. Marriott set to report later today. But analysts at TREP say a lot of CMBS lodging loans are maturing this year and next, over $30 billion worth. More than a third of those carry interest rates under 5% currently. There is concern that the consumer is starting to struggle and businesses are starting to cut expenses. If both leisure and business travel drop this year, that'll hit those property owners hard right when they have to refinance to much higher rates. Now, some of the REITs you might want to watch, Park Hotels, Summit, Apple Hospitality, all of them struggling year to date. Brian? All right. Any other sectors sort of inside or on the edge of this that people are saying could struggle a bit? You know, I'm hearing these mumblings about industrial, and I always called that the least sexy sector of real estate that was always the hottest because during e-commerce and, and the pandemic, there was so much demand for industrial. But some are starting to say that the sector is overheated, that its valuations are too high, and that it's kind of leveling off when it comes to demand with some new supply now coming onto the market as well. So you might want to watch that one. Yeah. And, you, you know, I guess when you say that, you mean warehouses, like logistics, yeah. like just mm-hmm. all that stuff, these giant Everything bland where the stuff buildings. You order from Amazon has to go there or a lot of the pharmaceuticals, the cold warehouse sector. We talked about that during the pandemic where you had to have warehouses that were closer into the city. You want your one day delivery from Amazon. Uh, industrial sector was moving closer into the cities, getting more expensive, taking over unused space. That sector is leveling out a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, when you saw that, if you drive up and down the New Jersey Turnpike, probably the same on 95 or the Dulles Tollway, right, where you are, every exit now has some, like, mile-long warehouse with 700 truck bays. It's incredible. And it's because we're not going to the stores as much or we're not going to the shopping malls. We all want it delivered. That's where it's all coming from. That's it. Diana Olick looking at hospitality and logistics and industrials. Diana, thank you. All right, so speaking of, we're now going to get the trades on both a hotel name and a REIT ahead of their reports. We're joined by Victoria Green of G-Squared Private Wealth, also a CNBC contributor. Victoria, good to see you again. All right, so let's start with Marriott. Morgan Stanley is bullish, noting business and some international travel demand still fully yet to recover, probably a lot of that in China. And while its debt levels are normal, 
Morgan Stanley hoping Marriott can finance more construction to grow RevPAR, revenue per available room. Are you a buyer of Marriott? I am. Coming off the heels of Hilton, I see them reporting very strong earnings this afternoon, and they have three things going for them. Number one, they're more on the luxury end, and I feel like they have great brands that can continue to, to, to get premium booking rates. Number two, they have a lot of growth in Asia that can continue to drive above average RevPAR growth. And then number three, you are still seeing a lot of leisure travel. People are continuing to prioritize spending on experiences versus what they're spending on goods. And Marriott just announced this partnership with MGM, which will allow MGM booking on their sites and a little bit more revenue sharing there. And for me, that continues to bring in this whole experience in the hotel world. So I see their brands as just a great driver from revenue growth, and they're bringing more and more rooms on on for availability. So for me, I think Marriott's going to knock it out of the park this afternoon. Yeah, because Marriott, I think a lot of these companies are misunderstood. I mean, they don't own a lot of actual physical real estate, do they? No, they use franchising, they use leasing, they use partnerships, you know, they've got their credit card revenues, branding, and they have wonderful loyalty. You have Marriott members that will drive like 30 minutes the other direction to make sure they stay at a Marriott hotel. That is the loyalty of their Marriott branding. You've met you've met our great and, and wonderful <laughs> tech crew whenever we go on the road. You stay in here. No, I'm driving 45 miles that way to get my Bonvoy points. All right, let's talk to, yes, I'm looking at you, Dave Grogan. Massive real estate developer Vornado, stock soaring, but Wells Fargo warning on commercial real estate in Manhattan, saying it's still risky. Piper Sandler flagging Vornado. It's facing $4 billion in maturing debt. Victoria, what do you make of these warnings? <laughs> Yeah, it's a sell for me, and they're so concentrated in New York. They're about 80% New York, and coming on the heels of New York Bank Corp and the CRE issue, they're very much into office and retail, and they do have some good things going for them, and I do think there is some green shoots happening in New York City. I think the death of New York City is slightly over-exaggerated, but I just don't see funds from operations bottoming out. I see them continuing to decline on revenues, on on net operating income, and I think they're just going to struggle to get their occupancy back up above 90%. So for me, I think it's a little bit too early there. I think there's still a few more shoes to drop. And while, again, I don't think that sector is going to completely die, I just don't see them getting the free cash flow from operations growth that we'd like to see. They have a little uncertainty on their dividend, uh, and that's just something I don't like to see in a rate. Yeah, also a couple of big buildings in San Francisco, like 555 California, very well-known office building, and we know what's happening in San Francisco. Finally, let's talk trash. Waste management shares on a steady (laughs) climb all winter, coming off another wild, by the way, Golf tournament, the waste management open in Phoenix. Waste volumes, a key metric, but Stiefel also watching input costs, things like fuel, labor, whatever. New ways to capitalize on recycling. Stock has been red hot. Are you a buyer of WM? I am. I think they've broken out and they can continue to, to grow their revenues, continuing to grow their operating margin. They've been great on controlling costs. Um, I think they're going to get more from their recycling. And I think they're going to see unit volume growth in trash, uh, which is not necessarily a great thing for the world, but a good thing for waste management. Um, and for me, I think they just have a great uh, management team that is continuing to say, how do we streamline? How do we make more money? How do we grow profitability and control costs? And they've been leading into technology. They were some of the first that introduced the single string recycling which has boosted recycling, which they're able to resell. And they're seen as a leader in the trash space. So call me Tony Soprano, but you got to lean into waste management right here. <laughs> I, do like, I do like the reference. A- any other plays alongside that sort of, I mean, it's been consolidated, <laughs> not by Tony and some of his New Jersey friends, but by others. What do they say? Uh, More I'm, legitimate. I, I, 
Yeah, very legitimate. Very legitimate. No question about that. You know, for me, I think they definitely are the leader in that space. I think there are some other interesting plays on the industrial side. You know, I know you were talking about uh, the warehousing and logistics being a little bit maybe overbought. But for me, we're moving so much more volume because we are buying so much more online and we have all of this. Hey, if it's 48 hours, like, no, I don't want that anymore. I'm expecting 24 hour delivery. So I see a lot in the logistics side. It's going to continue to be driven by AI and technology. And I know technology and like a logistics or a waste management seems silly, but the more that you can automate things, the more that yeah. you can can anticipate what you'll need, the better you can deploy capital. Yeah, I think I think I will quote the late great Freddie Mercury of Queen with "I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now." That's kind of how we shop. Victoria Green, G Squared Private Wealth. Victoria, thank you. Appreciate Thanks, that. Ryan. All right. Folks, just a quick check on the markets. I think we have a little bit of time here with the Dow up 200 points. And we've also got the NASDAQ up as well. NASDAQ getting close to another record. So there we go. All right, that does it for the exchange. I'll be back at 7 on Last Call. Power Lunch up next. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.